It is Thursday, December 8th, and welcome to episode 161 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that regularly gets you quickly up to speed three times a week on the national security and foreign policy debates shaking up America. Today, as you know, things are a little different. We're at the Reagan National Defense Forum, where we're honored to be joined by Ambassador Paula Dobriansky, who has served in five presidential administrations. Most notably, she was the former U.S. Special Envoy to Northern Ireland, for which she received the Distinguished Service Medal. She was also former Undersecretary of State for Global Affairs, as well as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights and Humanitarian Affairs. And a special shout out because she served as member of GMU's Board of Visitors. Let's get to it. So I just started with your extensive biography. And before we leap into policy questions, I do want to hear a little bit more about your background. As Undersecretary of State for Global Affairs, your portfolio covered an incredible swath of responsibilities. And so while serving in that role and others, you know, what issues or initiatives seem to take up more of your bandwidth and dominate your time? And, you know, what would you say are some of your proudest accomplishments? Well, thank you for that question and very pleased to be with you today. I have a number of accomplishments that I would like to share with you. Uh, The first is I was President Bush's envoy to Northern Ireland. And it was on my watch and serving President Bush that we had the devolution of power in Northern Ireland. And what that means is their parliament at Stormont actually came into being and functioning again. It was very significant in having that devolution of power. But it was also right in the aftermath when President Bush visited Belfast that we had the devolution of policing. That meant that both the um, uh, uh, Sinn Féin and also uh, the, uh, the Unionists came forward and they worked together on figuring out how to police in Northern Ireland rather than relying on the royal constabulary out of London. So a very proud uh, achievement was, in fact, indeed, the uh, devolution of power in Northern Ireland. So much so, I also received uh, the Secretary of State's Mm -hmm. highest award for that particular uh, achievement. Secondly, I would pick out the fact that we started uh, a number of global issues fora, one with China, one with India, and with Brazil. It was significant here because with China, we were able to tackle a number of human rights cases and resolve them. With India, we worked and collaborated on a number of democracy projects, which were significant. And then with Brazil, we worked in in the environmental area. But the value of those uh, um, entities or fora, we advanced the agenda with each of those countries in areas of cooperation and collaboration at the time. Thirdly, I pick out that during my time, we created the first at the State Department trafficking in persons office, anti-trafficking, global anti-trafficking. And here we had the first report that was issued, which rated and ranked countries on the extent to which they would traffic um, humans and victims. Here, it was significant, the achievement, because it was during my time in George W. Bush administration, we had the first cabinet meeting where all the cabinet members, all of them came together to talk about the kinds of actions specifically that their agencies would take internationally in combating traffic, trafficking and human trafficking. I think that we had quite an impact on that issue and raising the elevation, you know, bringing it to the forefront, spotlighting it as not only a human rights violation, an egregious human rights violation, but also in terms of it being a crime. 
Let me mention one, uh, well, two more. Um, Colombia, Plan Colombia. I had the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement, and we dealt extensively with the country Colombia. And Colum Plan Colombia was a bipartisan initiative. During my time with Plan Colombia, we focused especially on the diminishment of uh, the uh, drug production, the coca, uh, in this case, uh, we sought coca eradication. And I have to say that I think we worked very closely with the Colombian government in trying to achieve that and really bring that down. I think that so much so that actually when we were dealing with Afghanistan, we were looking at what was achieved in Colombia in the uh, uh, literally the diminishment of the cultivation of the crop, uh, how it impacted the environmental area and how to prevent that from happening and actually trying to transfer some of the lessons learned to the case of, of Afghanistan. Finally, the last, and forgive me, but I'm proud you can see is a broad range. The last one, actually very different, uh, but in the global sphere, uh, it was the establishment and creation of the UN plan or UN uh, agency or entity to combat HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. And actually, what was very significant, that came literally at the time, shortly after 9-11, when there was a very extreme focus on counterterrorism. But yet, it was literally in the beginning of the next year that Kofi Annan, was in, uh, the Secretary, UN Secretary General, was invited to the White House with President Bush. And actually, they announced the establishment of this UN if you will, entity or UN effort against um, uh, HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis, malaria. So those are the ones that I'm very proud of, and thank you for letting me mention it, because you could see that they were very broad, very different from one another. But um, I think really all the made world's a difference. problems. <laughs> <laughs> well, not exactly that, but yeah. it, I think in each case, mm -hmm. it made a difference in people's lives. And I'm sure continues to your point of looking to the past to set precedent and best you know, practices for moving forward on initiatives. Um, and so then looking to today, and you know, we're here at RNDF, and a lot of the conversations here about great power competition in, in China, no surprise, you know, what do you make of the current competition between US and China? And you know, what areas do you think China might start to ramp up the competition? Well, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to broaden your question. Sure. Uh, because first, I do think that the uh, strategy document that was released during the Trump administration it focused on great power competition, and it focused not just only on China, but also on Russia, and how they're united together in some ways. And they are, one, because they seek to diminish U.S. power and influence globally. And you look at any case internationally, and you will find that that is, in fact, what they're seeking to do. Secondly, they also work very hard at trying to fragment our alliances, in particular our transatlantic alliance. Uh, both countries have worked very, very hard to try to split us apart. So in this case, I would define great power competition as an, uh, an organizing principle of U.S. foreign policy. I think it's had a real impact on how we look at the world geopolitically and also how we figure out the kinds of steps and actions that we are going to take uh, in, in these cases. So going to China, China politically, militarily, and economically are all you know, 
a challenge completely. Certainly politically, China tries to advance its own interpretation of what is the best kind of structure that there should be, what should countries join into. Quite frankly, China is a communist country, and it's not one that espouses or supports political freedoms. So in that regard, I think one needs to call a spade a spade uh, and not assume that it's something else. Economically, China has engaged in kind of economic activity globally in which they're strangulating other countries. On one hand, they will come forward, offer to build a bridge or build a building, but then they ensnare countries into situations where then they're indebted. They are they have to worry about loans and paying China back. And the situation, it's unfair trade practices. And in fact, the WTO has even called China on these unfair practices, uh, whether it is in terms of, um, well, just about almost every area. Let me just put it that way. Um, and militarily, there's great concern because China has invested very heavily in its uh, Navy. Uh, it has also taken some very aggressive actions, uh, certainly in the South China Seas. There's great concern about what China will do uh, relative to Taiwan that's out there. So um, across the board, I would say that in this competition, the competition is also driven by these kinds of actions. Let me say a word about Russia. I want to because here at this very conference, there's talk about that. And in fact, there was this afternoon a panel, and one of the panel said and asked, well, weren't you a bit remiss by only focusing on China? What about Russia? We've witnessed this egregious, brutal invasion of Ukraine and the kinds of atrocities that are taking place. So just on Russia, as I indicated earlier, we're Russia and China united. But by the way, let's remind ourselves, although Russia is economically in dire straits, it has not modernized, it has massive capital flight, brain drain, I mean, all of the above, but the fact is Russia possesses nuclear weapons. And the fact is also Russia does supply other countries heavily with arms. India, a strategic partner of the United States, its number one arms supplier, by the way, is Russia. Okay, we're number two. So I just want to put that in perspective. Here on Great Power Competition, my definition is not just China. I think we should always have been concerned about Russia and what Russia's doing. So a couple questions. So, you know, we heard earlier this, you know, in the fall, the no limits partnership between China and Russia. So, you know, I think traditionally maybe one thinks of Great Power Competition vis-a-vis one country at a time. But it seems like our adversaries are aligning. So, you know, were you surprised by that? Do you actually believe there are no limits? Or, you know, do you think China's kind of walking back a little as they're making statements about, you know, no nuclear, you know, no, no nuclear options in Ukraine? Well, let's put the relationship between China and Russia into perspective. Historically, actually, there have been periods in history where Russia and China have been totally at odds with one another. At this particular time, we have witnessed over the last decade, actually, the relationship between China and Russia grow exponentially. First, on the political front, we notice the fact that Putin has visited Xi Jinping and vice versa. I believe that now, maybe it's close to 40 times, they have celebrated one another's birthdays. Uh, they, you know, had uh, uh, Putin went and visited Xi Jinping during the Olympics. Um, it, it goes on. So. 
there's a kind of a political kind of tie and bond. Yeah. And that's of a personal nature. Mm -hmm. That's something that stands out as a bit different from heretofore. Mm -hmm. Then you look at the economics of it. Um, Russia is having severe economic issues. Russia is being sanctioned. It's being sanctioned because of the aggression into Ukraine. And so in that regard, Russia has been looking eastward. Mm -hmm. There is a pipeline that took decades, by the way, for being concluded. Mm -hmm. And finally, what do you have? You finally have the Russians concluding it with the Chinese. But by the way, the Chinese got the better end of the stick mm -hmm. on this one because the deal wasn't in the Russian favor. It was in China's favor. But here, economically, if you look at the figures, the figures also show that Russia has been exporting more into China uh, and relying on China as a kind of a market uh, for uh, their limited products, such as it is. Um, then the last is the military. And on the military, uh, it is noteworthy that in the last number of exercises, there was one Vostok uh, East that it invited in China uh, into the exercises in which they did participate. But they also are rendering China a lot of military assistance to fortify and to build mm -hmm. their own arsenal. So here I would say that the relationship is a close one. I would say that they are aligned. Do I consider it? It's not a marriage of convenience. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, would I say it's a real tight alliance? Not exactly. Mm -hmm. I would call it a close alignment, but most significantly, U.S. policymakers and others have to really watch where this relationship is and how it's been growing uh, closer and closer. Finally, let me just say, I'd say, because you asked the question, is there anything that might be a challenge in the mix? And the answer is yes. Russia will never, ever want to be considered a junior partner right. to China. It is, mm -hmm. okay, uh, certainly economically, militarily, it mm -hmm. does have nuclear weapons. And, uh, well, its performance in Ukraine has not been, uh, it's been really subpar. But having said that, Russia does not want to be perceived as a junior partner. So anything that would suggest that, the Russians would buck up against. So do you think if China decided it was in their best interest for Russia to pull out of Ukraine, that there would be anything they could do to sway Putin to, to leave? Or do you think they just don't have that leverage? There's no, that's not where the relationship is. I don't think the Chinese want to do that. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's been any indication that they want to do that. Mm -hmm. And what's striking to me, China, by the way, does rely on its grain imports from Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, rather extensively. But yet, they did not condemn Russia's actions. Also, they have stayed away from certain terminology. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they've condemned NATO. Uh, they've also used other language that the, that the uh, 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 Russians have used as part of their script. But the fact is here that clearly the Chinese want to have their cake and eat it too. Uh, they want to maintain the relationship with Russia, but they do not also want to be grouped in that category of being a pariah state. Right. Um, so it was interesting. So I did a little digging on you. So I was going through some of your YouTube appearances, and there was one entitled Russia, Ukraine, and the U.S. And, you know, it starts off with, you know, Russia's actions are a grave threat to the international order. And then I looked for more details, and it was eight years ago. So this is 2014. And so here we are again, you know, 2022. You know, what do you see happening in the next year? What is there a resolution in the next year toward you know what's going on in Ukraine? Like, what do you foresee? 
I will answer your question, but I can't help but make a statement because you said you saw the 2014. Mm -hmm. It's worth noting, people ask the question, um, did Putin intend to invade at this time, you know, on February 24 of this year? And the answer is yes. And why? Not only because of Afghanistan and our departure from Afghanistan, but 2014 was a significant year. It was in 2014 when the Ukrainians actually appealed to the U.S. government, please give us arms, give us arms, because we want to fight against the Russian aggression in the Donbass and also in Crimea. We did not give them arms. The U.S. administration at that time, in 2014, opted not to. But most significantly, they also said, do not fight. Why does that matter? Well, at that time, the vice president was uh, Biden. He's president now. Putin calculated that or thought that by invading now, he could get away with it, honestly. And I would say in this case, I think that was a bit of a surprise. But you asked what's next, okay? So what's next? Um, in terms of what's next, I think that seriously depends on what we do, plain and simple. I think that, and you hear it here at the um, uh, uh, RNDF conference, um, clearly it depends on what kind of military assistance, not just what kind, but how far and how fast we get it there. They need it now. If they don't get it now, then time will drag on. Mm -hmm. And what will that mean? That will mean that the Russians will continue to do everything their utmost in trying to drain Ukraine mm -hmm. and make them very, very uh, uh, literally uh, try to wear them down. So it depends on what we do. It depends on the level of assistance that we give. We should give them aircraft that they've requested. We should give them the kinds of high-level drones mm -hmm. to counteract the Iranian drones. We should give them the artillery, the long-range uh, missiles that they've requested. Why? They need all of those now and during these winter months in order to actually have an onslaught and not permit Russia to reboot its own military. That's what's needed now. If those things are done, mm -hmm. I would say that you asked me about next year, mm -hmm. then the only option that should be out there for Ukraine, which is victory, mm -hmm. could be, in fact, achievable. If we delay mm -hmm. and these things do not happen, sadly, I think that we will still see this kind of dragging on and dragging on, which is not in Ukraine's interest and not in our interest. Last, President Zelensky, he always says this. He says that the fight in Ukraine is not just about Ukraine. It's going to affect the global community at large. He's right about that. Because quite frankly, if the Russians think that they can succeed in Ukraine, that will definitively affect Europe. But it will go farther than that. Xi Jinping is watching very closely in China. What is all of this going to mean for me? And if I can get away with it and go forward and, you know, deal with Taiwan and, and attack Taiwan, I'll do it. So what happens in Ukraine matters greatly. Your question is an important one. It really remains to be determined, but it's determined by, by us, us and our actions. So you might have answered this question already, but one of the goals here of doing these conversations is to ask experts what they think the biggest national security threat to U.S. interests are in the upcoming year. You know, what do they think will make the headline in 2023? Well, I think there are two issues. First, the one that we've been discussing, I do think that Ukraine is still on the table and achieving a victory in Ukraine. 
I think that's a grave situation and one that has to be dealt with. I don't see negotiations coming into play at all until Ukraine is able to achieve territorial, its own territorial integrity and sovereignty and pushing Russian troops out. So I'm stating the obvious, that's a key one. But let me tell you and share with you what came to the forefront last night here at the uh, RNDF. I hosted a discussion and collectively the group identified one key issue. And I, I really want to share it because it was so striking to me. And it was technology and innovation that the United States, if we do not invest in technology and innovation as relevant to our defenses, mm -hmm. that we will woefully be impacted and our national security will be impacted. Unanimously around the table, you had some government officials, some former government officials, and also industry types. And without a doubt, they said that how crucial it is to actually look at this issue, that technology and innovation can be a major challenge for us if the United States does not move faster and also does not also invest more heavily in this area. And that's a wrap. Thanks to Gabriel Otis and Brooke Agacon from NSI and Claude Jennings for their help producing today's episode. Join us again tomorrow for our last interview as we continue and wrap up our conversations with national security leaders from RNDF. Thanks for tuning in all week to Fault Lines, our podcast that gets you smart fast on the national security debates shaking up America. 